0: Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. Talks on Mike Collins on the local news roundup. The rift within the Republican Party and between that party and Fox News gets a Carolina connection as Tom Tillis calls BS on Tucker Carlson. The governor and lieutenant governor share their views on the state of the state. State Treasurer Dale Falwell says not so fast and urges CMS to be realistic about a $3 billion bond proposal. Meanwhile, CMS holds listening sessions on a new superintendent, another sexual assault accusation surfaces at CMS and... The Avit brothers may have their music showcased in a Broadway musical. Here to talk about those stories and more is Eric Spanberg, managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Good morning to you.
1: Good morning, Mike.
0: Eric will be duking it out for airtime with three TV reporters who don't like to give up the mic. They are the from the holy trinity of Charlotte TV stations. Nick Oxner is here, WBTV's executive producer for investigations and the station's chief investigative reporter. He's investigating right now, wondering why he said yes to this program. Good morning.
2: Every Friday, Mike, that I'm yep. on. Good morning. He's Good loyal. morning.
0: Hunter Sines is here. He's a reporter for WSOC TV. Hunter, thanks for joining us. Good morning. And Shamaria Morrison, reports for WCNC-TV. Thanks for being here, Shamaria. Welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So for years, the cable channel called Fox News has been broadcasting fake news supporting Donald Trump's lie about the 2020 election. And now Tucker Carlson, the leader of the pack of lies, has gotten his hands on the footage taken by cameras in and surrounding the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, using carefully chosen, never-before-seen footage to spread yet another lie that the insurrection on January 6 was mostly peaceful chaos. Those are his words adding that although there were a few bad apples, most of the January 6th rioters were peaceful. He called them sightseers, not insurrectionists. And when he was asked for a response, here's what North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis had to say.
4: I think it's bullshit. I was here, I was down there, and I saw maybe a few tourists, a few people who got caught up in things, but when you see police barricades breached, when you see police officers assaulted, All of that, or you had to be in close proximity to it, if you were just a tourist, you should have probably lined up at the visitor center and came in on an orderly basis.
0: The steady stream of revelations coming out of material leaked from the lawsuit Dominion Voting Systems has filed against the network for defamation over fraudulent election fraud claims. That were lies, and the network knew that there were lies. It's setting off a firestorm behind the scenes at Fox. It's setting off a firestorm within the Republican Party. It's setting off a firestorm between the Republican Party and uh, Fox noise. Uh, many Republicans uh, seem afraid to alienate Trump and the base by trying to remake history. So why did Tom Tillis say what he said?
1: Well, I'm not sure if I know the reason why he did, but there were several republicans and prominent republicans uh minority leader mitch mcconnell uh, brandished the letter from the capitol police chief uh, criticizing tucker carlson you heard mitt romney uh call it really sad to see tucker carlson go off the rails like that lindsey graham said i'm not interested in whitewashing january 6th so there was a lot of strong pushback and mike i think you mentioned in the lead up to your question one of the most interesting aspects of this which is you know, how much of a break is this? Uh, because everyone knows that Fox News is very influential with Republican voters. So I think it would be a stretch to expect any of these political leaders to break fully with Fox News. But they did make some powerful statements this week.
0: And meanwhile, there is that underlying case filed by Dominion Voting System, which claims to have been damaged by the string of lies that Fox aired about their electronic voting machines being rigged. And, and we know their lies because of the emails and the text messages exchanged among the major Fox hosts and Rupert Murdoch and Rupert Murdoch and the head of uh, Fox News, uh, decimating the credibility of Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and others, including Trump. In those communications, they admitted that they knew what they were saying on the air were lies. From a journalistic point of view, where, where, where does that leave I
1: mean there there there's well I'll let Nick pick up. I'm just gonna say real quickly I I don't see any room for them to talk their way out of this. I, I don't I don't know if they'll be punished or not, but journalistically, there's no justifying the fact that you know you're lying on air
2: and you're comfortable with that. Uh, Part of the problem is we saw, you know, the man who controls Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, at the very top, acknowledging one thing privately and and allowing another thing publicly to happen. And he, he also admitting that he probably should have done more to to. Stop his talent from saying that on television. But Mike, back to your question about the journalism piece of it. There are some journalists who work at Fox News, right? They, yes. What we've seen and the people we've seen saying one thing privately and doing another publicly are in the primetime opinion uh, group of Fox News, which Fox News has always said, look, we have a news division and we have an editor- you know, editorial kind of um, non-news division. Um But if I were a journalist at Fox News, I would be very, very uncomfortable uh, there today.
0: I'm just curious from a journalist's point of view, if if the Dominion voting systems uh, win this uh, case – and it appears likely that they will because it's easy now to prove malicious intent, which you must prove in these in these cases, because it's in writing. They got the goods, essentially. So if they win this case, there, there will be monetary damages and punitive damages. But should it include some some kind of regularly scheduled on air admission that we lied to you, we've been lying to you repeatedly?
2: And, and, you know, that might be why this doesn't settle. If I were Dominion, I would want something like that at least one time as part of a settlement agreement. And my guess is that Fox would never agree to that. I don't know. Um, But, you know, with all this damning evidence, you'd have to wonder why it hasn't settled yet. Uh, But that is probably the reason. And so we'll go to a a trial, potentially. You know, there's one other thing about this, Mike, is we're talking about the journalism
1: aspect. I, I think. Equally disturbing to the fact that they're knowingly putting lies on air is they also have text messages that show evidence of those primetime hosts calling for their (laughs) news colleagues to be fired for reporting accurately on the false election claims made by Trump and his allies. That is such despicable behavior. I just can't even imagine a news organization doing that.
0: And, of course, the people who need to know this most— The Fox News viewers aren't hearing any of this on their air. They're not talking about this at all. And that's that's the real shame. Yeah. On Monday, uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper gave his final state of the state address.
4: North Carolina continues to be the best place, the best place for people to live, learn, work and raise a family. Our talented, educated workers are the foundation of our economic success. And we've succeeded in expanding that workforce to be more diverse and more inclusive. A great workforce also relies on public schools. Educating the next generation of workers who will fill the jobs that we haven't even imagined yet is how we're going to stay an economic powerhouse.
0: A few choice moments from that speech. He sounded upbeat and positive despite having to deliver it to a room full of mainly Republicans in the legislature, but he did thank them for taking a bipartisan approach to a number of uh, things. He was also upbeat because the state of the state is strong. That would be accurate, wouldn't it,
1: Eric? I I mean, certainly financially it is when you're looking at a, what, $3.2 billion surplus. Uh, Of course, I, I think Republicans, Democrats alike, have enjoyed the benefits as other states have of all the federal recovery money. So it's made their decisions a lot easier. And at the same time, as Nick kind of hinted and may may repeat now, free show, uh, you know, the governor is delivering his state of the state address, but he doesn't have much leverage because you're looking at a nearly veto proof uh, majority in both chambers of the legislature. So he, he's going to be hard pressed to uh, twist many arms uh, this time around.
0: So the governor did some crowing and in the Republican response, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson gave the credit for the state's success. Here's a surprise to the Republican legislature. The Republican
2: led General Assembly turned a state that was billions of dollars in debt and struggling
0: financially into an economic powerhouse. North Carolina is the number one state in the nation to do business. This was a speech from a Robinson we have not seen before and one that was very different from the Robinson that showed up to speak over the weekend at CPAC. But factually. Was he accurate in what he said?
5: Oh, I'm yes. sorry. I was going to I, I, was gonna I, let I stumped the panel. I, I,
2: had a, I had a desk phone ringing that I didn't want oh, to interrupt okay. my Go answer, ahead, but then. now it's over. So, I, look, I, it. everything is, is spun, uh, just like things are spun from the governor's speech to favor him and his party. Everything in Robinson's speech can be spun to favor him and his party. I think um, both speeches... Uh, might might be labeled uh, one of my favorite terms, accurate, but not precise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Cooper talked about his successes. he laid out some of the goals, which may be difficult to achieve, as Eric pointed out, because of the makeup of the legislature. But he did recently achieve something that he has been working for, toward for years, the expansion of Medicaid.
4: Finally, we all now agree on Medicaid expansion. We all now agree on how to do it, and we all now agree on what other health care laws will be changed with it for mental health, for working families, for rural hospitals, for a healthier North Carolina, for $1.8 billion that we cannot afford to leave behind. Let's expand Medicaid now.
0: The legislature voted to expand Medicaid. It doesn't go into effect until sometime this summer. Why the delay?
1: Well, they've put it, they are going to include it as part of the state budget. And they say that makes the most sense. Um, And the governor, as you heard, is saying he wants it to happen right now. So uh, even in their crowning moment of glory, there's at least a little bit of disagreement. But you're right, Mike, this has been a a long slog for Governor Cooper, who's been pushing for this from the moment he was elected to his first term. So it is going to happen, but they're just. Uh, it's not go- going to happen as quickly as he would like it to. And maybe brought, not necessarily like
0: he'd like it to either, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Yeah. You brought up the budget. The legislative leaders announced on Wednesday that they have agreed, and this is really early uh, uh, in the process because it usually takes much longer to reach agreement on a budget, but they've agreed. And they're going to increase spending by 6.5% in the fiscal year that begins July uh, in July to a total of $29.7 billion and 3.75% more the following year. We have a surplus of what? About $3 billion Yeah. this year. Uh, how will this extra money be used?
1: Well, that's the fight. I mean, th- we're going to have that fight again about... Uh, On the Republican side, they want to cut taxes. Uh, On the Democratic side, Governor Cooper, you're hearing him say already he wants double digit increases in teacher pay, uh, state employee pay, and uh, he's not going to get everything he wants. And it remains to be seen exactly how much of a tax cut uh, the Republicans will try to institute on the personal side, unlikely to be on the corporate side.
2: Nick? He, uh, he's I'll likely speak. not going to get anything he wants from well, governor. Let's be clear with the, <laughs> the veto-proof majority in the Senate and the mostly veto-proof majority in the House. They need one, Republicans need to flip one person. But I do think we see some broad, it's, it's much easier to get along when you got a $3 billion surplus, right? So I think, Broadly, we've heard from House Speaker Tim Moore that, you know, they have this surplus and, and the House is the one who argued against the Senate that they wanted to spend and do a bigger increase. You know, Phil Berger, very fiscally conservative. Um, but I think everyone agrees we're going to give phrases to people. I think, you know, I'm hearing a lot of chatter out of Riley that we're also going to invest money in infrastructure needs. Um, and so I think broadly, everyone's going to agree on that. It's the nitty gritty detail that I think are going to be the fight.
0: So the governor has called. I have thirty seconds for these double-digit increases in pay for teachers and state employees. Is he likely to get anything close to that? Would the legislature I, be on board with that? I
2: think teachers and state employees will get a pay raise, and state employees likely to get a higher uh, percentage because their uh, employee association has much better relationship with the general assembly.
0: And even with an increased amount in the budget for all of this. It's still less than we are anticipating to bring in in terms of the coffers. We have to take a break. We're coming back with more in a moment. at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks and the local news roundup on Listener Funded, 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins, Nick Oxner's Och- here from WBTV, as is Hunter Signs from WSOC-TV, Shamaria Morrison from WCNC-TV. Gosh, the lighting in here is wonderful this morning for all these people. And Eric Spanberg, chief investigator. No, he's the managing editor of the Charlotte (laughs) Business Journal. I'll get it right. Uh, Shamario, one reason that Lieutenant Governor uh, Mark Robinson may have sounded calmer and less of a firebrand than normal in that speech, that segment of that speech that we played from his... His take on the state of the state was it could have been his first speech in his run for governor. Most believe that he intends to throw his hat into the ring. Someone else who might be running for governor is state treasurer Dale Falwell. And he had something to say this week about the possibility of CMS floating a $3 billion bond in November. He told them to be realistic Specifically, he told CMS and Mecklenburg County to, quote, look realistically at capital needs. He chairs the local government commission, uh, which okays local government borrowing. Could he nix this referendum before it even gets put on the ballot?
3: Uh, no, that's not exactly how it works. So it can happen one or two ways. Uh, the voters, they can vote on a referendum, say not $3 billion, maybe a little bit lower than that. And either that commission can take into account, okay, well, the voters say, yeah, we want to do this and they can go ahead and do it. Or it can be the opposite way where Mecklenburg County has to give it to the commission. The commission is like, hey, I'm not too sure about this. You all might want to go back and put a lower number on that referendum and the voters do it either way. There has been precedent for it to be happening either way. Um, I can't think of the district at the moment, but they talked about that actually last weekend when both Mecklenburg County commissioners and CMS board members were talking about the possibility of it being mixed up at the state level when it comes to the great amount of money there was for it.
0: Well, to put this amount of money in perspective, and it used to be more than 3 billion and the school board pared it down to just under 3 billion, I think the County Commission wants it to be even lower. Uh, But that $3 billion would be the largest bond issue the state has ever dealt with. And the state treasurer says it's more debt than the state government has outstanding in Go bonds. Uh, But this money goes to a lot of projects that members of the school board see as a must. How much of a sales job? Will they have to do at the state level and with how, how much of a sales job have they been doing with the commission?
3: Oh, it's it, it's gonna be a big job, and I mean, I guess you have to put it into perspective, like you know, the school is not immune to rising costs of construction and things going up. Like if you are paying more personally, um, it makes sense that the school may have to pay more to get something built, right? Um, so they have been trying; they're trying to get to that three billion. I'll just tell you this much, and anyone else who's in education will tell you they will likely not get that three billion. It's going to be looking closer to two point five billion. Well, and maybe is this one go is this
0: one of those money. cases where you ask for more? than you know you're going to get so you'll get what you need absolutely okay
3: absolutely i deal with my dad all the time okay.
0: <laughs> it's a great negotiating tactic tactic at work too hint hint uh we're going through uh property tax uh, revaluation the results of which we should know in a week or two uh, property taxes could rise b- because of this bond or stay revenue neutral Uh, But the taxes would likely increase if the $3 billion bond goes on the ballot. And uh, CMS board member Jennifer De La Hara made the pitch to you, Shamaria, this way.
3: The public education system ultimately affects us all because it is a pillar of our very democracy. And investing in the students is an investment in our future.
0: And she's not alone in that opinion on the board. Several of them have spoken about the need to improve buildings, to build new schools, something they say that subliminally speaks to the students about how we adults value education. And when it comes to the price tag and its potential impact on taxes, board member Lisa Klein gave you this rationale.
3: I don't want my taxes raised. I know you don't want your taxes raised, but I also know that We use the term world-class education and a world-class school system, and we may have to pay a little bit more, especially if we want what's best for our children.
0: The board met last weekend with county commission. What were the arguments being made there? What do you know about what was said back and forth?
3: Well, the concerns from the County Commission is this. Uh, they're not only responsible for CMS buildings, they're also responsible for other things in the community when it comes to capital. So you're thinking of the Sheriff's Department, libraries, um, even local community colleges. And so not only are they thinking uh, that CMS bonds may rate tax rate, may raise taxes, those other responsibilities may also raise taxes. And not only that, you have your cities and mun- municipalities who also may raise taxes. So this just isn't, isn't happening in just a silo, so they have to to uh, make sure that they're thinking about that. And those same people that you're raising taxes on as far as house ownership, well, you could be impacting them negatively as well. But, you know, CMS says it's all a big circle and at some point you have to make the schools better because it's not, it's, uh, it's not going to do, do well for students overall.
0: And the uh, school board member, Jennifer DeLaHara uh, made uh, uh, a pitch for why we need to do this to you this way.
3: We've already cut 10 projects off to make it more palatable for our county commission and ultimately our public um, to, to accept this, this tax referendum in November. Um, that, that cut alone affected about 7,000 students. So if they were to cut it further, we would be looking between five and 10,000 more students who are not going to have that optimal learning environment that we know that they deserve.
0: And WFAE's education reporter Andas Helms reports this week that some of this money for upfitting and for new schools would be focused on safety and security. Uh, Mecklenburg County Commissioner Lee Altman shares those concerns.
3: Somewhere between ten or fifteen thousand students who are on open campuses, and I have a great deal of concerns around security for those kids.
0: And CMS construction consultant Dennis LaCaria says new school designs take that into account.
2: Getting those kids into one building with one front door with a security vestibule transforms the security and safety aspect of each one of those campuses.
0: So you reported that the commission is leaning toward a figure closer to $2.5 billion. And you say that in order to keep taxes where they are, the bond can only be $1 billion dollars, uh, that would only fund what, how many projects?
3: Um, if it's at the one billion mark, uh, less than one third or just around unless they mix some things up. But, you know, when you were talking about that safety issue, that's one of the reasons why CMS is like, hey, you all keep telling how we have all these problems, that's guns coming on campus, right? If you've noticed some of those guns coming on campus this year were at open campuses of schools where those students may be able to just go off campus, come back, not go through those uh, body scanners because they only have them at limited uh, amount of entrances. So these are solutions to some problems that we're having that are wider and larger than just talking about school capacity or just really bad facilities. I've been in some of these schools, and I'll be honest, I want to leave sometimes. <laughs> so I, I can only imagine what the students and what the uh, people who actually work there feel as well if I don't want to be in some of the schools, because they, they do have problems.
0: When, when you say you, you wanted to leave, is that because of safety concerns, or is it because of the condition of the building?
3: The condition. I'll even give you one example. Kennedy Middle School. It's actually right here where I live. It's a very, very old school. It's here in the Still Creek area. They had to chop that school off the list. It's a local middle school. It's very, very old. I mean, you think of what the air quality is in schools like this. So these are actual problems. They even have schools right now that uh, may not even be connected to, uh, to sewer and things like that. They have people who are out and they are in portables. Like, do you want your kid learning in a portable? Um, These are valid concerns. You
0: know, we've been learning in portables here for as long (laughs) as I can remember. And we had a school superintendent once who said he didn't care whether we had buildings or portables. It's the quality of of the education that mattered. No comment. I'd say that I'd rather Uh,
3: (laughs) be in a building than a portable, wouldn't you, Mike? Well,
0: well, yes, but all right, the the $3 billion. I I
2: learned in one of those in fourth and fifth grade, and I turned out just fine. Well,
3: now. That's debatable.
0: (laughs) That's debatable. Uh, uh, The $3 billion. If if you just look at a school like Myers Park High School, which is an open campus, very much like a college situation, if you wanted to, to, to seal that up, it would cost a fortune, wouldn't it?
3: Oh, it would just be too much. It wouldn't even be worth it. Uh, it might even be, and I, I I would say it might even be more money to do that than it would be to just take it all down and rebuild it. I don't know for sure, but I think that's a fair assumption.
0: Meanwhile, uh, CMS has been hosting uh listening sessions because they're in, in they're looking for a new superintendent. Uh and they're hosting, I think, twenty-eight listening sessions in the course of two days. They did it Wednesday, they did it uh yesterday, Thursday. What, what do we know about what they are hearing? And these are parents and others coming to these listening sessions, correct?
3: Yeah, they're very niche groups. And so it's less of what was happening before when they were asking, you know, any and everybody, hey, give us your feedback. Um, they're doing groups like um, local sororities. They're doing groups, um, you know, you have, you know, CMA, which is the teacher's union. They're also doing um, neighborhood associations. And so they're getting group, feedback from these niche groups to make sure um, that they didn't miss anything the first time around as they're continuing to uh, actually interview with people who are superintendent candidates.
0: Uh, Nick uh, Oxner joined us last week briefly as a special guest star appearance because of a series of exchanges that he had with the interim superintendent over allegations of the sexual assault of a five-year-old on a school bus. And after the parents were assured that the system had been handling it, the little girl was forced to sit next to her alleged perpetrator on the next time around on on the bus. And you, you had difficulty, Nick, getting a response from anybody at the school system, including the interim superintendent. Well, now you're back because another alleged case of sexual assault involving another kindergartner has come up. Fill us in.
2: Yeah, let's start by saying how sad it is that we're talking about not one, but two five-year-old students in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools who reported being sexually assaulted. This new case, the mom called me uh, after she saw our stories last week and said, well, the same thing happened to my daughter just recently. Uh, So this case involves uh, students at Greer Academy, also in Northeast Charlotte. The first one's at Croft Community School. Um, And this new case also involves a five-year-old girl who reported that uh, uh, an older boy who she rides the bus with while they were at the bus stop uh, looked up her dress and touched her inappropriately. Um, unlike the last case where administrators at Croft Community School filed a Title IX report, agreed to take some protective measures, and this didn't take those protective measures, and, and called police, in this second case, the school uh, called the girl's mom uh, and told her, what had happened, but they didn't file a Title IX report. They didn't offer protective measures, and they didn't call police, all of which they're required to do. Uh, And most importantly, uh, the girl is still walking by the boy on the bus every day when she gets on and off the bus.
0: How do you explain that? I mean, this is not the first time, and it's the second time that we know of with a kindergartner a five-year-old Before that, of course, were all the cases that you looked into last summer with older students at other schools. And in every case, it seems that they're not following the rules.
2: And Mike, that was actually two summers ago. And I say that just to emphasize the fact that we're going on two years, two years of me uncovering charlotte mecklenburg schools mishandling reported rapes and sexual assaults these are all cases where students and or their parents have come forward appropriately reported to administrators appropriately reported to police and every single time the school district has not done what they were supposed to in the most most recent case of this five-year-old at Greer academy as soon as that the, The same day that I called Charlotte Mecklenburg schools to ask them about this case, the principal called the mom to schedule a meeting, and that meeting happened this week where she finally got all the paperwork. The the incident happened two weeks ago. There is no explanation why this keeps happening. Dr. Crystal Hill, the interim superintendent, said in January, touted all the improvements that the district has made, that they've increased training for administrators, that they uh, expanded the Title IX staff from two staffers to 11, and yet we still have this happening. And Mike, as as we talked about last week, and as you mentioned today, when I've tried to ask Dr. Hill last week on camera why this is happening, I couldn't get an explanation. And for this story, the second five-year-old girl reporting being sexually assaulted, uh, I got zero answers from anyone in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools.
0: We do have a seemingly uh, uh, a pattern here not just at CMS, but throughout governments at at all different levels about an incredible lack of transparency and an unwillingness to be forthcoming on something that seems relatively straightforward and simple. It doesn't seem like this is something you have to hide. They didn't do it. A five-year-old did it or a nine-year-old did it. So be honest about it and handle the situation the way it was uh, supposed to be handled. Why aren't they?
2: I would love to get an explanation from anybody. At the end of the day, Mike, what has happened in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools is a complete and total lack of accountability for anybody. Let's look at what happened to the principal Myers Park High School after we found a half dozen students who reported being raped or sexually assaulted and nothing happened. Well, he got transferred within the district still keeps the same pay. Let's look at what happened to the principal and assistant principal at Hawthorne Academy where a girl was suspended for reporting a sexual assault and made to take a sexual assault is preventable class. Well, they got moved to different positions that should be making half of what they were but they got to keep their same pay let's look at you know the only person who faced a modicum of consequence here for any of this was superintendent ernest winston and that's why we are on an interim superintendent but the members of the school board half of which have turned over you were not heard any any reaction from any member of the school board you've got elise Dashew, the chairwoman who is the chair when i started this and is still the chair who refuses to address this in any kind of way you have jennifer de La Hara, at large member who told me about the hawthorne girl that she was too busy and needed to eat her lunch to answer any questions about this they don't take this seriously and until there are consequences for anyone in charlotte mecklenburg schools i'm afraid i'm going to keep have to report on this
0: how much of it is because they might consider this as kids being kids?
2: I don't even, I don't, I actually don't think that's it. And the more frustrating thing to me is I do think Dr. Hill, cause remember she was chief of staff to Hugh Hadabaugh before she was made interim superintendent. And as chief of staff, this Title IX issues were in her portfolio. I do actually think Dr. Hill is committed to improving the handling of reported rapes and sexual assaults on campus. That makes it even more frustrating then that she won't answer my questions, makes it even more frustrating then that these things keep happening and even more frustrating that we have a district that is still not taking this seriously.
0: Okay. We'll keep our eyes on it as I know you will. I uh, only have a couple of seconds left in the segment, but I want to launch into something else that happened this week with schools. Leaders at a Mooresville Charter School, Shamari, a Pine Lake Preparatory, found themselves having to apologize after a viral video popped up online of their field trip to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Why the need for an apology?
3: Well, the school apologized because they said that they weren't supposed to be wearing any type of political wear. Um, So they apologized for the attire and how it made people feel, but they didn't apologize specifically for what it represented. You actually had students who called out the school district for not having a stronger enough language denouncing what happened.
0: We're going to talk more about what happened and and, and hear from a student because you spoke to one of the students at that school and evidently uh, this is something that he has noticed and has been concerned about. For quite some time. But we'll get into the specifics of it when we come back. Shamario Morrison is here from WCNC TV, along with Hunter Signs, who's been very quiet, but he's not about he's about to speak up, I promise, when we come back. From W S O C, Nick Oxner from WBTV, and Eric Spanberg from the Charlotte Business Journal. They're all here and wondering why. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's the Local News Roundup on Charlotte Talks on WFAE. I'm Mike Collins. Uh, Shamari Morrison, we were talking just before the break about an apology that had to be issued this year as a result of a viral video of uh, uh, Pine Lake Preparatory and their trip to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. It was posted by a teacher from another school who felt, she said, she and her students felt uncomfortable because so many of the Pine Lake students were wearing Trump and MAGA hats. This is an African-American museum, but you spoke with student Michael Stratford, who was not surprised,
5: but... My first reaction was disgust. The black and brown community at Pine Lake has been dealing with this discrimination for a lot of years um, and we've been trying to fight against it for the equal amount of years. I'd say that it was a mixture of direct racism and
0: peer pressure. So what did the school say in their apology?
3: Um, again, they just reiterated that the students were not supposed to be wearing those hats, uh, the MAGA hats, and they weren't supposed to be wearing the MAGA shirts. And they apologized if it caused any type of political discord. But I think it's important to note race here in this, because it brings context to the story. That student that you just heard, he was a white student um, speaking about this. And this teacher from the other school who talked about making her students uncomfortable, she was a black student. Um, and so a lot of, uh, of of race kind of came up into this conversation about MAGA meaning more than just a lot. President, um, It means, you know, people who identify as neo-Nazis um, who say, you know, that they identify with the Trump and the Trump brand. And um, some of the things that have been problematic and have been outright racist that have been said by either the president or the former president himself and or the people who surround themselves with them. So it's, it's not just about First Amendment rights is about what did you want to do when you were there and I think that's what those students um, have been calling out.
0: Charlotte City Council on Monday talked about the what the final I guess the final piece of the uh, Eastland Yards project that's the revamping of the old Eastland Mall site that piece was supposed to be developed by Charlotte FC until David Tepper pulled out of it last summer. What has been proposed to replace their portion of this project? Well, Eric.
1: it was interesting there are three uh proposals that the city has received one was for a tennis complex one was for an aquatic center and the third one the wild card is a target store <laughs> and what's what's really amusing about that last one is the residents over and over for years have said they want a sports and recreation uh, Feature as part of the redevelopment of the Eastland Mall site. Target clearly is not that. The difference, though, Mike, is that Target would pay all of their expenses and buy the land. The other two projects I mentioned, the sports projects, both are asking for roughly $45 million a piece from the city and then would put in $10 million of their own money, and the council committee did not like those proposals. Yeah, these are big. In that form.
0: These are big projects. The swimming complex would have 1,500 to 2,000 seats, be able to host amateur and U.S. swimming and collegiate events. The tennis complex would have 80 courts. uh, And the collegiate and professional complex, 16 of the courts would be uh, devoted to pickleball. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a fad that needs to be noted. Uh, (laughs) But Councilman Ed Driggs is afraid. Swim and tennis groups would uh, need a large amount of money, as you say, a large amount of public money to see this through.
1: I think these numbers are high. I'm concerned about the ratio, particularly in light of the fact that we do not have the committed funds, as you pointed out, Mr. Chair. So I think we've got work to do.
0: So members voted to give everybody 60 more days to refine their proposals, something uh, that uh, uh, Council Member Marjorie Molina, who represents East Charlotte, uh, believes is needed. She said her main concern is to provide the best opportunity for Eastland
3: and fulfill the promise that the city has made to the east side for so many years now
0: so this would be a public private partnership hunter i believe if uh if private money can be found the city would still have to kick in correct
5: correct um and would be on the taxpayers, uh, of course, to pay for that. That is, unless, and Eric can correct me if if this is wrong. Unless Target is the option, because then Target is going to pay for it all, allegedly. Um, but it, it goes to the point that Eric was was saying earlier: if they go with Target, which I believe is a last option right now in this horse race, uh, they would not be. Um, going through with their promise for Eastside residents who have long wanted something that brings that community together, makes it a destination that it once was with Eastland Mall, and have this sports component.
1: Mike, one of the interesting things that's going on kind of behind the scenes is you mentioned the Tepper option that was uh dropped or rather he dropped the uh he pulled out um the the city was talking at one point about putting up to 35 million dollars into a Charlotte FC headquarters for Tepper Sports and i think that some of the um sort of perceived Uh, wisdom, if you will, is that, well, if they were going to put $35 million into what Tepper was going to do, maybe they'll put that or more into what we want to do. And what we heard from the council committee was, uh, no, not so fast. Now, that could change, but for the moment, it seems like they are not inclined to do that.
0: Uh, City Council was also involved in some arts discussions. Uh, Their new arts and culture officer is putting the finishing touches on her first assessment of the local arts community, but council voted this week, to cut Arts and Science Council grant funding uh, from, for this summer that would have helped fund their operations for another year. The city's not up and running with their thing, so why now?
1: Well, that's the question, and uh, the the sentiment seems to be that City Council has been trying to get out of the Arts and Science Council business for a couple of years and can't figure out how to do it during this transition period. The leaders of the Arts and Science Council obviously are very upset that they received funding the past two years, as you mentioned, $800,000 one year, $950,000 the next year. And they have been called upon to help distribute some of the other grant money to arts groups. So, Mike, after two years of this, and you, you've watched this for a long time, the arts uh, reorganization, revamping, it remains highly unsettled, and they only have one more year of funding before they have to really figure this out for the long term. And,
0: and you mentioned in your story that city council members Ed Drakes, Malcolm Graham, and Braxton and Winston helped shape the policy framework their, that they're dealing with right now, and Winston noted that the ASC was not originally created to be dependent on public funding. Is that true? Was it only meant to be a united way of the arts kind of fundraiser at, at private institutions?
1: Well, it it did lean heavily uh, toward private funding. There's always been some public funding involved of uh, not only of the arts themselves, but of building the venues and maintaining them. Uh, But at the same time, Mike, one of the interesting points about that is that uh, in the current assessment that just came out, the state of culture report that the city council commissioned, (laughs) in essence, One of the findings or recommendations is that the public sector needs to take the lead on funding. So we're we're going in all kinds of zigzags. And by the way, if you're not uh, covering this or involved in it, I don't know how you would sort it all out because there are more acronyms and exceptions than can be believed.
0: Okay, Uh, we'll, we'll be following that as well in the coming year, because this is the worst idea ever. That's my editorial statement on that. Uh, We have seen thieves come into jewelry stores around the country, uh, smash the cases, take the merchandise and run. But something similar has now begun happening in this region, but to luxury car dealerships. Hunter, what's been happening?
5: Yeah, so many of our area dealerships and across the state really have been hit by thieves who are super quick and are literally driving some of these cars out of the showrooms. A lot of it caught on camera. Um, We had one that just happened yesterday in Cornelius um, where an Audi and a Dodge Durango were stolen. There was one. Um, earlier this month that happened on East Independence Boulevard in which a Maserati and three BMWs were stolen. And so this is being looked at and investigated right now to see if this is a more organized crime ring that's happening around the state, because we've also seen it in Asheville and East Carolina.
0: Yeah, I saw the video with the Maserati and the BMWs, and these guys come in, they know exactly where the dealership hangs the key fobs for these cars. They grab them, they get in the cars, and they crash through the front windows. I mean, they're damaging the cars on the way out. And you spoke with CMPD Detective Calvin Helms, the lead detective on the case, who made this observation. It seems coordinated, and it is very brazen. And he added that the way they exited by crashing through the showroom windows is a bit unusual. You would think that they would want to get these undamaged, these cars, high-end cars undamaged, but who knows what they're going to do
4: with them afterwards anyway.
0: They have any idea what they're going to do with a damaged car?
4: So police
5: didn't answer that. However, when I spoke to some of these dealerships, they are hearing within the industry that these are being sold internationally. So they're being driven down to some of our ports here in North America, put on barges or boats and then sold internationally. And when you think of it, those damages, I mean, it's a profit for them, whatever they sell it for, even with a scratch on it or a dent on the hood.
0: Some equally well-made cars, but lesser in value, Hyundais and Kias, uh, have been having a problem with uh, people stealing them because of TikTok challenges around the country. Uh, I'm not sure which models of Kia and Hyundai are involved in this, but I know that Hyundai has made a donation to CMPD of 112 steering wheel locks. Is that the fix to this? It's a temporary fix, and you
5: speak to some of the drivers, and they would like to see a more permanent fix. But to your model's question, it is only the cars, allegedly, that take an actual key, so not the push to start. Um, So if you have to put a key in it to start it, those are the ones that are being targeted. Um, I know right now that uh, Kia and Hyundai here, just within the last week, are rolling out – a new software update that will be free so just call your dealerships to get it but they are rolling it out, like over a certain amount of time period I don't know if they're going by models. um, But it will be a slow roll but finally some sort of temporary solution I never thought that we would have to go back uh, to old school clubs um, that I used in (laughs) high school to lock up my truck but here we are.
0: Who knew you drove a truck? Uh, uh, more <laughs> impro- <laughs> more Not anymore, imp- but used to. <laughs> uh, more information came out this week in the case of Madalena Kochakari, the 11-year-old Cornelius girl who went missing last November. This involves what police is has learned have learned uh, in interviewing a distant relative. Talk about that.
5: Yeah. So we found out through these warrants that I know Nick will chime in on and how it came about to get these, but. Supposedly, detectives interviewed a distant relative who told them that Diana Kozikari and her mother were asking him to help smuggle both Diana and Madalena out of their Cornelius home. And that was due to a bad relationship that Diana had with her husband, Christopher Palmiter, who are both arrested as we know and in jail still. um, And she wanted a divorce. Um, Then they tapped into that distant relative's phone And found out that Diana had extensive communication with that phone number, that relative, two weeks before she was arrested in this case. Um, And in regards to that, the, the wiretap that they went into, they found out that That number um, was also associated with several um, alleged drug and narcotic uh, smugglers. And then in that warrant, it noted, which a lot of law enforcement officials will agree on, is that when you're working with drug and narcotic smugglers, they also, um, a majority or a good portion of the time, are also known for human smuggling. So there's a new component as to, and I think a new sense of hope, um, as we know if they don't find a person within a certain time period it grows colder and colder uh and so there is some new uh, renewed hope i think in this case that potentially um could she have been smuggled or was that in the works
0: do we know if and i only have 15 seconds but do we know if uh what this relative told police jibes with what uh Madeline's mother told police We do
5: not. I mean, this was just a trickle of information. And I know that it was hard to get. It was uh, supposed to be sealed and then somehow was
0: was put out there. Last week, of course, we noted the passing of Jerry Richardson, the first Panthers owner. This week, someone else connected with sports also passed away. Gene Fote who lived the last years of her life in South Carolina, died in Rock Hill on February 28th at the age of 98. She was considered the greatest overhand pitcher in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. She shared this story with uh, Grand Valley State University. This one gal, uh, Jean Havlish, she played for Kenosha. She told me that uh, the gals would ask about my pitching and... She told them that every time they knew I was pitching, their manager, he would call a special batting practice to get ready for me. Then they said, uh, well, after you had the batting practice, did you hit her? Heck no, she said. (laughs) We couldn't hit her at all. Just so you know, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League that she played for inspired the 1993 film, A League of Their Own. And despite her numerous accomplishments, for Jean Foote, it was all about team. Oh, I had uh, quite a few no-hitters. But uh, my biggest accomplishment as a pitcher, is I pitched two perfect games. But you have to remember, I had a good team behind me. Well, guess what? The Avett Brothers are moving their music toward another venue and a new audience, Broadway.
5: Lord, lay your hand on my shoulder And guide me
0: to our... That's Stark Sands, a member of the original cast of Kinky Boots, playing the role of Big Brother in the Berkeley Repertory Theatre production of a new musical based on the music of the Avid Brothers. That's a new song that Seth Avett wrote just for the show. Other songs come from their numerous albums. Well, now that show, Swept Away, which is inspired by true events around an ill-fated 19th century New England whaling ship swamped by a storm, is itself traveling to Arena Stage in Washington. It has some heavy hitters shaping it, including John Logan, who wrote the book for Broadway's Moulin Rouge, and director Michael Mayer, who won a Tony for Spring Awakening. It opens in D.C. November 25th. And, of course, they have their eyes set on Broadway. Okay, don't forget to set your clocks ahead an hour on Saturday night at 2 a.m. Get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and set them ahead. That's when you have to do it, because daylight saving times, time begins yet again. Nick Oxner from BTV, Shamari Morris from WCNC-TV, Hunter Signs from WSOC-TV, and Eric Spanberg from the Business Journal. Thank you all for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com.